Let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. My intention over the next two Sunday nights is to give us a vision for youth ministry at Heritage Baptist Church. This sermon and, Lord willing, next week's sermon falls in the great tradition of Sunday evening vision sermons that we've been having lately. Remember, we've talked about mentor kids, we've talked about solo moms, Pastor Rich has preached those two sermons, and this is kind of another one. So, um, as you know, the last five years I've been really, really privileged to work closely with your kids, and I think it's always good to come back and ask the question, what does Scripture say about the way a church should minister to its young people? So, that's kind of what I want to lay out for us the next couple Sunday evenings. Now you might be asking, does Mark have an agenda? Is he trying to push some sort of youth ministry model on us? No, don't, don't, don't think that. I don't have any agenda other than to encourage us with Scripture. So that is my agenda. And the fact that, um, and, and my agenda is to encourage you because um, God has used the pastors and ministry to the youth in this church to radically transform lives. So you don't have to have some sort of official program or some sort of official thing for God to God to work. In fact, um, God used a, a dentist by the name of Rob when I was 15 years old, sitting in the dusty church basement across the table, um, to radically change my life. And all he did was read the Bible to me for 45 minutes. So God can use whatever he wants to use. And um, all I want to do is put what we're trying to do in perspective for us. Because youth ministry is, after all, church ministry. You may be thinking, my kids are, my kids are older or my kids are grown. This, then this, this sermon doesn't necessarily apply to me. But it, it, it has everything to do with you. It has everything to do with everyone in this church because the children that God has given to the families in this church are the stewardship of not only the families in this church but the church. And we are to be ministering to the families that have these children out of concern for them. Well, as you know, probably, youth ministry is an often highly debated topic that's filled with multiple perspectives and diverse opinions. In my recent research over the last several months as I've been reading on this, I've come across no less than 19 different models for youth ministry, and all of them say that theirs is the one. Well... Most of the, I'm not going to take time to, to, to share all 19 perspectives with you. I don't think that would be very encouraging or edifying. But most of these perspectives can, can kind of be chunk, chunked down into two main categories. They are isolated youth ministry and eliminated youth ministry. Those are kind of my two broad extremes. The first extreme is what I'm calling isolated youth ministry, and this is the typical evangelical youth ministry model. It extracts youths, youth out of the, the local church and separates them into age-segregated groups, focused, giving them special focused attention based on their ages. There's activities for youth, including youth Sunday school, youth retreats, youth events, youth small groups, and they're all arranged and coordinated by a charismatic, musically gifted youth pastor who has a soul patch and talks in really hip language. That's the typical uh, evangelical youth ministry. And this, this perspective emphasizes rightly the role of the church in the life of children, but it undermines the role that God has given to the family. And this is by far the most common practice in our day, and it does have its positives. It recognizes that the church is not the family, 
that the church has a unique responsibility to minister in the lives of youth, and it also recognizes that there is some value in age-appropriate instruction for different age groups. But there's also negatives. The negatives come with basically giving parents a drop-off mentality where you can just come by, drop your kids off, we'll take care of all your spiritual nurture and instruction and then send them on home or provide activities and things and basically remove a key element in God's discipleship process, which is the family. Well, the second extreme is what I'm calling eliminated youth ministry. This view is rarer in our day, but it targets youth by eliminating the age segregation and encouraging the families in the church to take primary responsibility for the nurture of their children. From this perspective, it's not the youth that receive the special attention, but it's the families and especially the dads, the fathers. This perspective emphasizes rightly the role of the family in the life of children, but it it can at times undermine the role that God has given to the church. So there are obviously positives here, and there are the positives that the isolated youth ministry uh, doesn't have, and there, there are some negatives as well. Well, it seems to me that both of these perspectives have something correct, but the biblical perspective is to be found somewhere in the middle. The truth is that biblically youth need both the family and the church. Any attempt that emphasizes the role of one to the exclusion of the other is not completely biblical. The family needs the church and the church needs the family. Youth will not be well served where church activities are available, but parents are not. Neither will youth be well served where parents are available, but the church is not there to support them and get behind them. One of the men that I have read recently, and, and, and I would not agree with him theologically on a number of points, but he, he does get this right. His name is Mark DeVries. He's worked in youth ministry a number of years, and he seems to strike this balance really well. Here's what he says. What do teenagers need in order to grow toward mature Christian adulthood? On the one hand... Teenagers need continuity with tradition. They need a faith community to be nurtured in, i.e. the church. They need the church. But on the other hand, they need to step away from that tradition and develop a faith of their own. Not their mother's faith, not the pastor's faith, not their best friend's faith. The two tasks often seem to work against each other. But unless we address both of these needs, our youth ministries will be limited in their long-term effectiveness. Now, I think Heritage Baptist Church and its history has struck this balance pretty well because we've recognized the role of the family, we've recognized the role of the church, and we've, we've tried to, to bring ministries to bear on the life of the kids in our church that, that support both of those. But my goal in these next two sermons is to, is to kind of lay out a vision, to reorient our minds, to get us thinking again about what we're about when we say that we do youth ministry. And I want to do it in such a way that it avoids both extremes of, of isolating or eliminating and at the same time embracing all that is right about both of them. I want to lay out a biblical perspective that takes seriously the role of the church and the role of the family. I want you to picture it with me like a triangle. Okay? At the top of this triangle, you have the pastors who are charged with equipping the saints for the work of ministry. At the bottom left-hand corner, on your side, right for me, on the bottom left-hand corner, you've got parents, and over here you've got youth. Okay? At the top are pastors. They're teaching in two directions. They're teaching directly to parents, which is their task to equip the saints for the work of ministry. They're teaching youth directly, charged to preach the Word of God in season and out of season. So they're addressing the youth, they're addressing pastors or parents with the goal 
of helping parents fulfill their call to the youth, namely to, to raise, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, I've turned you to a text tonight, and we're going to get there. I have a tendency to long introduction. Sorry about that. We're going to get to the Bible now. Ephesians 6, 1-4. This is a biblical perspective of youth ministry. The best one that I could think of when I was thinking about what text really captures this. And what I want to do is draw out six observations from this. I'm going to preach three of them tonight, three of them, Lord willing, next Sunday night. And I just want to bring our attention to what this text teaches us about the way the church ministers to parents and youth. Let's read the text together, and I'll pray briefly. Ephesians 6, 1-4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Father, we pause briefly before your word to ask that you will bless it tonight to our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one, here's the first observation. A biblical youth ministry sees parents, especially fathers, as the primary youth pastors of their children. A biblical youth ministry sees parents, especially fathers, as the primary spiritual leaders or youth pastors, if we want to call it that, of their children. Now, you remember why the Sunday school movement was created, right? Sunday school... And the Sunday school movement was originally created as an outreach to unreached, unchurched, poor children. And I'm not against Sunday school. I'm not against it. But what, is, what slowly happened in church culture, and you all know this, is that for most Christian teenagers, Sunday school and youth group have become a substitute for spiritual training in the home. That is, interestingly enough, the Sunday school movement itself, though it began as an outreach to unchurched children have in fact taken now over the role of churched children. And it has become a movement that is an outreach to churched children, not unchurched poor children. Well, a biblical youth ministry sees parents, especially fathers, as the primary spiritual leaders of their children. Notice the text here. We see Paul in verse 1 saying the following, Children, obey your parents. And in verse 4, he stresses, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The primary, though not exclusive, fear, fear, sphere for training and teaching young people is the home and not the church. When addressing the topic of who is responsible for training young people, Paul underscores the home as the place in which it is to take place. God holds parents responsible for training their children in the ways of God, not first and foremost, pastors. Children are instructed to heed the voice of their parents. This is underscored in the parallel passage of Colossians 3, 20 and 21, which I'll not take time to turn you there. Now, I want to focus for just a few minutes on verse 4. Now, this is going to be our, our main point tonight. The next two, uh, observations 2 and 3, will come very quickly. So you may think, whoa, Mark's spending a long time on number 1. Are we ever going to get through this? And I want you to encourage you that we will. But this is heavy, and this is something we need to get. So I'm going to, I'm going to camp here for a few minutes. Now, 
Pastor Ted, last Father's Day, I was out in California, but I was able to catch it on the Internet, preached to us from Colossians 3 about fathers not exasperating their children. So I'm, I'm going to assume that, you, that you, you remember that, and I'm not going to take too much time to talk any more about that. But I do want to camp on the second part of verse 4 and ask the question, what are the responsibilities of parents to their children? And you notice... Parents, especially fathers, are to bring them up, verse 4, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the, the word discipline, which can be translated in various ways as nurture, training, learning, instruction. It's the Greek word pedeia. This word is used in Hebrews 12, 5. There are 12, verse 5, 7, 8, and 11, all translated discipline or chastening. It's the idea of what God does for His children. That is, the idea is what... what we are to do in the training of our children. It's do what I tell you. It's the training. It's the learning. It's the nurture. It's the discipline. It involves setting up regulations, setting up rules, rewarding, chastening, um, the whole idea of bringing up and instructing and training, reinforcing. The whole idea is captured there in the word nurture or training or learning or instruction. But that's not only the only word there. It's discipline and instruction. Now, instruction has to do with what is spoken, counsel that's given. Um, For example, it's saying, if you keep doing that, you're going to run into problems. It's Proverbs. What the father and the mother are saying to their son in Proverbs over and over again. I've got counsel for you about that. Let me tell you things about that. So, So on the one hand, you've got parents saying, Uh, do what I tell you to do. And on the other hand, you've got parents saying, listen to what I tell you. So it's the both, it's the training aspect of doing, teaching children what to do and how to do it, and at the same time, giving them counsel. So that's what nurture and admonition is. Nurture is correction, training. Admonition is counsel. Now, how in the world are parents to fulfill these responsibilities? Well, I want to turn you to two familiar texts. Go back with me to a very, very familiar text in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6. And let's read the familiar words here of verse 4 through 9 of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's the point here? Parents in Israel, I want you to know what your responsibilities are. Your first responsibility is yourself, not your kids. Your first responsibility is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And have the words of God on your heart. And then by that, teaching them diligently. There's the training aspect. The diligent teaching of the Word of God to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house at all times. In your house. Notice the sphere there. You will sit, talk of them in your house. 
and when you're out walking and driving and when you lie down to bed at night when you get up in the morning. The Word of God is to pervade your home. Now, parents have a this sort of formative effect in the lives of their children for better or worse. What, what I mean by for worse is the neglecting of these responsibilities also trains their chi- you train your children in those ways as well. But all the youth group Sunday school lessons and small group DVDs, videos, and whatever else is minuscule impact compared to what children learn day to day in their homes. Come, come to my school and let's talk about the effect that the home has upon a life. I could literally pour myself out for kids. And I've done that, and I, and I will continue to serve and help in any ways I can. But it is very, very, very difficult to beat the home. It is very difficult to beat the home. One of my favorite movies is the 1984 epic Karate Kid. <laughs> I put my wife through it on our honeymoon. It's the way of introducing you to our marriage. Honey, I've got to show you the movie that's impacted my life, The Karate Kid. Well, you might remember the storyline, right? Daniel LaRusso, little boy who coincidentally is Ralph Macchio, and he looks exactly the same as he did back then. The guy's never aged, it seems like. But Daniel LaRusso meets a little Okinawan repairman. His mom and he has a single mother. They've just moved all the way across, to, uh, across the country to California, and... Daniel, as we find out throughout the movie, is getting picked on and bullied big time. Okay, he's the new kid on the block. He's getting roughed up. So he starts practicing karate by the book, right? He's sitting in the living room and he's kicking. And uh, Mr. Miyagi's the repairman, so he comes in and he noted he's fixing their leaky faucet. And he recognizes that um, Daniel's practicing karate. And he says, karate. Just notices him. And he doesn't let on anything about him knowing it or anything. But one day, Daniel's in, is in a real scuffle. He gets beat up really bad. And the only reason his life is saved is because Mr. Miyagi steps in and whips four boys for him. And he finds out that, slowly but surely, that, that Mr. Miyagi knows karate. And so he asks him, will you train me? Will you help me know karate? And, and Miyagi's very wise. And um, he recognizes that, that Daniel needs training and help. So the first thing he starts with, right, you remember, they've all become cultural like phrases. Wax on, wax off. <laughs> he gets him to wax the car. He doesn't, Daniel doesn't understand why Mr. Miyagi is having him wax the car. He thinks he's just putting him to work. Then he has him, what, paint the fence and sand the floor. So he sands the floor. And all this stuff, and he's, his muscles are getting tired, and he's, he's getting, he, day after day after day, he shows up in the morning, and Miyagi has a note. Paint the fence today. Paint house today. Uh, sand floor today. Wax cars today. And he's like... And eventually he gets really angry with Mr. Miyagi and he starts to lash out at him. And Miyagi calls him back and says, Stand in front of me. And he says, Sand the floor. And he starts to punch him and he does the motion. Instinctively. Because he's been doing it for four days and he's wor- And he tells him, Paint the fence. And he throws a, throws, a, throws a punch at him and he blocks it like that. Just instinctively. What's my point in using this crazy illustration? (laughs) My point is, all of Daniel's book study, all of Daniel's stepping outside and just just getting uh, 
looking at his book and studying his book could not beat the life-on-life training that he received from Mr. Miyagi. And the same thing goes for kids. All the book learning, all the stepping out, going to the dojo to learn karate, while all the other boys were doing, putting them in there, separating them, isolating them, and teaching them. Daniel was better because he painted the fence with Mr. Miyagi day after day after day. And that illustrates this principle. You can't beat the home. You can't beat life-on-life discipleship. You can't expect one day, one Sunday school class, one youth group event to beat Monday through Saturday in a house where kids are watching you as you rise up and sit down and sit in your home. You can't beat it. Let's look at Psalm chapter 78. Psalm 78. Verses 4 through 8. Psalm 78. Verses 4 through 8. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. That they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Notice just a few things here. I think this text provides a helpful paradigm for what we're getting at in Deuteronomy 6. In other words, what does it really look like day by day to train your children? I think this text gives us a wonderful look at that. Notice, first of all, in verse 4, is you have the centrality of God, right? We will not hide them from their children, the, all those glorious things that God has spoken and done. But tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. The glorious deeds of the Lord are what we want to pass on to the next generation, to the coming generation. So the centrality of God. But all this truth about God is contained in a book. There is a deposit of truth. Notice verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. So this law, this word, contains in it the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and all the wonders that He has done. And we're to teach those things to our children. We're not merely to pass on to our children practical life skills as much as that is important. We're to pass on to our children a vision of God wrapped up completely in the Scriptures. And what, what comes as a result of this teaching? Verse 6, that the next generation might know them, children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. That is, that they would know them themselves, and that they would arise and begin, to begin teaching the next generation as well. That they would so own those things that they would learn them for themselves, that they would know them. And as a result, verse 6, they would set 
their hope, verse 7, they would set their hope, their confidence in God. All of a parent's teaching and training must have a view to that child setting their hope in God. So sometimes that will mean letting children fail. Sometimes that will mean letting children experience what it means to have to trust God. And all that is moving toward a life of obedience, verse 8, where they're not like their fathers who were a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God, but rather whose spirits are faithful to God and whose hearts are steadfast. That's what we want. So it's the centrality of God taught through the Word so that children might learn and know them, set their hope in God, and live a life of obedience to God's glory. Jonathan Edwards says this, Every Christian family ought to be, as it were, a little church, consecrated to Christ and wholly influenced and governed by this rule. And family education and order are some of the chief means of grace. If these fail, listen to this, if these fail, that is, if the home fails and the responsibility to take the deposit of truth and the Word of God that's about God, to transfer that to the next generation so that the generation yet unborn will set their hope in God, if that is failed, all other means are likely to prove ineffectual. Get that. Jonathan Edwards said, if the home fails, all other means are likely to prove ineffectual. But if these are duly maintained, all the means of grace will be likely to prosper and be successful. Parents are responsible, as we've seen, for leading their children. Their home is to be a mini church. The first place a kid should be taught the things of God is not Sunday school, but at the dinner table. The person a child should hear pray the most is not the pastor in the pulpit, but mom and dad by the bedside. This instruction is to be consistent and primary in the life of all children. Parents play a a role second only to the Holy Spirit in building the spiritual foundation of their children's lives. So now, how can we apply this point about a biblical youth ministry having a focus on parents, especially fathers, as being the primary spiritual trainers of their children. Well, this means this, that anything that is done for youth must be done for parents. Anything that has a, that has a view to, to youth is done for parents. Let me stress this. Moms and dads, your kids go to Sunday school to help you in training. Yes, they are sent to Sunday school to learn, but they are there. They are learning, which means you are invested in that. You care what's going on in that. You are concerned with what is being taught there. You own that curriculum. That's huge. So it's, it's serving you. It's serving you and coming alongside of you as you seek to train, shepherd, nurture your children. This means that isolated youth ministry, where kids are totally kept away from the, the and, and kept away from the life of the church will not work because to do so is to isolate youth from the very people that God has called to ultimately shepherd them. This means that absolute isolation in youth ministry will not do. Again, Mark DeVries understands this when he writes, the primary cause of the current crisis in youth ministry is the way that our culture and our churches have systematically isolated young people from the very relationships that are most likely to lead them to maturity. Systematically isolated from the very relationships that are meant to bring them to maturity. Number two, this is the second observation we make about youth ministry. 
a biblical youth ministry comes alongside parents to equip them for the work of parenting. Biblical youth ministry comes alongside parents to equip them for the work of parenting. A sign spotted in a toy shop window in the 1980s captures the attitude of hopelessness and confusion that many parents feel in this generation when it comes to what to do with their children and teenagers. If you, you know, you, you've lived long enough and you're, you're in this world as well, and you know that most people don't have a clue how to parent. They don't know what they're doing. And this sign spotted in a toy shop window in the late 80s captures this attitude. 1920, the year 1920, what do you do with your children and teenagers? You spank them. 1930, what do you do? You deprive them. 1940, what do you do? You ignore them. 1950, what do you do? You reason with them. 1960, what do you do? You love them. 1970, what do you do? You spank them lovingly. 1980, what do you do? Forget about them. Paul addresses fathers in verse 4. It's important here to point out what Paul is doing, is he not? He is coming alongside fathers. Think about this. Paul's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he comes alongside fathers as a pastor, as an apostle, and reminds them of their responsibilities. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. He's reminding fathers of their responsibility. He's doing what he already said pastors ought to do in Ephesians 4.11, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. A huge portion of youth ministry is not directly devoted to youth at all. Rather, the primary focus is on equipping parents for the work of parenting. Michael Orr was the cover story of World Magazine this week. And there's a new movie coming out called The Blind Side about Michael's life. Uh, Michael was a poor teenager. If you read the story, you're familiar with who he is. He's a poor teenager living in one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in Memphis. Leanne Tui saw him driving one night, walking on the side of the road in the dead of winter in nothing but shorts and a t-shirt. She saw him, she gave him a bed to sleep in at night, and she offered him a meal, and eventually, along with the rest of the family, began to see him as part of the Tuies, the family. So she and her husband, Sean, soon adopted Michael formally and helped him get his education on track, hired tutors for him, encouraged him to join the football team, and the rest of the story is very, very recent history, which the movie captures. Or when Michael Orr went on to college at Ole Miss, made the dean's list, and was the first round draft pick in the 2009 NFL draft for the Baltimore Ravens. This story illustrates the power of what happens when somebody comes alongside somebody else to help them accomplish something. Michael Orr would not be anywhere near where he is today. He'd probably be dead without Leanne and Sean stepping into his life at a very pivotal, pivotal time and equipping him for life. And that's what the church is to do for parents. We are to come alongside parents. This is not just formal either. This is informal. This is the life of the church working together. This doesn't require a Sunday school class. This doesn't necessarily, although those are great and we're going to have one. This doesn't require 
any sort of special program. All it requires is families watching out for families, families caring for families, families entering into families to help, to encourage, to equip pastors seeing it as their primary responsibility to equip parents for the work of parenting. So youth ministry is parent ministry. Don't see that as separate. Don't see, well, this is ministry to the youth and this is ministry. No, it's all ministry to the youth. What we're doing right now is ministry to the youth. What we do in Sunday school, whether or not we're with our children or not, is ministry to the youth. We're trying to become the kind of people that we can fulfill our responsibilities to our children. And parents, it's a great comfort to know that you're not alone. Especially in this day and age, one of the greatest needs is parents to feel that there is someone there to help them. There is someone there to come alongside them, to be the twoies to a Michael Orr and step in and say, look, let me help you. Let me equip you. And we need to become the kind of church where this is natural. It is not at all awkward to seek each other's counsel on these things. That it's not at all awkward for us to, to move into each other's lives in these kind of ways and speak these kind of things and model these kind of things and encourage these kind of things where it's not weird for one mom to call up another mom or one family to call up another family saying, hey, I want to talk to you about some things. I want to, I want to enter into some things with you. I want, to, I want to chat about some things with you. So church, the children in this church are not just children belonging to other families. They are children that God has entrusted to us as well to care for because they're part of the families of our brothers and sisters that we're called to care for them. And by, to care for others and brothers and sisters means that we care for them in their parenting and we care for them in their um, nurture of their children. So these are children that God has entrusted to us as well. Finally, tonight, number three. A biblical youth ministry strengthens the relationships between parents and children. A biblical youth ministry strengthens the relationships between parents and children. Notice what Paul says here in verse 1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. What is he doing? What's Paul doing? He's ministering to children. What is he trying to do? Strengthen the relationship with the parents. Verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What's Paul doing? He's speaking to parents. What is he trying to do? Strengthen the relationship between the parents and the children. Harvard psychiatrist Armand Nicoley indicates that American parents spend less time with their children than do parents in any other country in the world. That is an amazing statistic. According to the Wall Street Journal, American parents spend on average less than 15 minutes a week in serious discussion with their children. Less than 15 minutes a week in serious discussion with their children. Now, one in four children indicate that they have never had a meaningful conversation with their father. 76% of 1,200 teenagers that were surveyed in USA Today said that they want their parents to spend more time with them. And it might be hoped that churches would stand in the gap and provide an environment where children and youth could dialogue and collaborate with adults, especially their parents. That when they come into the church, that relationship might be strengthened. But in fact, what's sadly happening is that the church may be the place where kids are most isolated from their parents. 
by and large. Today, what is a successful youth ministry? It has everything for kids. It is it has youth Sunday school, youth missions trips, youth small groups, youth evangelism teams, youth worship, youth budget, youth interns, youth committees, youth Bible studies, youth pastors, youth centers, youth choir, youth rooms, youth discipleship programs, youth fundraisers, youth retreats, youth conferences, all the while actually reinforcing everything they are already receiving in the culture, which is don't spend time with your parents. Jesus died to change all that. Let's look at Luke 1. This will be the last text that we turn to tonight. Luke chapter 1. Luke 1 in verse 16. Talking about John the Baptist, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi 4 that the prophet Elijah would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and Here's what we see. Verse 16, And he will return many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the, pe- for the Lord a people prepared. This is talking about John the Baptist. He's going to come and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. But the goal is that the hearts would be prepared, that the hearts would be turned to the Lord, and then as a result, when hearts are turned to the Lord, what happens? Hearts are turned to children. Children are turned to parents. One of the biggest evidences of conversion in the life of any man, mother, father, woman, is that they love their children. They care for their children where they once did not. One of the biggest marks of conversion in the life of a young person is a heart that's turned toward mom and dad, that loves mom and dad. So, we'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And in Malachi 4, it says, and to turn the heart of the children to their fathers. Now, fathers, you can have your heart turned away from your children in a number of ways. You can have it by just ignoring them. Jesus died to change that. Jesus died so that your children wouldn't receive the dregs of your existence. Jesus also died so that you would not abuse your children, that you would not neglect your children, that you would not put needless burden and not let your children be children. Jesus died so that when they grow up and they let you down, and they've taken you for granted. And they never said thank you to you to keep you from bitterness and to keep you continuing to love them and serve them. And children, you can have your heart turned away from your, from your fathers and your mothers by simply being rebellious and disobedient. Or older children can have their heart turned away by neglecting to care for an aging parent. So the word from this text is father's The application of having your heart turned to your children is fathers and mothers, turn your hearts to your kids and don't give them the leftovers. Think about during the day as you're at work, dads, I don't want to get home 
and have no energy for my kids. If anything, I want to conserve strength and energy so that when I get home, I can give my kids what they need. I can give my kids what they desire, what they are in need of. And turn your hearts to your children. Don't be unkind or constantly criticize them or even have, God forbid, wicked thoughts that lead to some form of sexual abuse. So we've got to let the bitterness go. We've got to roll it onto God and at least from our side be willing to forgive, especially those of us who are perhaps older parents and have kids that are older and that, that have disappointed us. Children, turn your hearts toward mom and dad. Don't rebel. Obey. Don't neglect to care for your father and mother and grandparents, especially as you get older. Jesus turned His heart toward us. God the Father turned His heart toward us in Christ so that the hearts of children would be turned to fathers and the fathers to their children. Now, I want to I share with you in closing the, uh, a new idea that we've had and that we've talked to, through um, that I've had the privilege of chatting with our pastors about and that you've seen in the prayer meeting, uh, prayer notes and prayer sheet for a number of weeks now, as far as what's coming up with two th- in 2010, you may have asked or seen, what is this fusion thing? I've seen this as replacing Teen Sunday. What's, where, what happened to Teen Sunday? All that stuff. Let me just share what that's all about, okay? Um, several, several months ago, um, I got an idea of a way that um, we could... We could minister to families and and our youth on a Saturday evening, um, and so I I thought, well, let 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 me see if um, if I can chat with some other guys that I respect. So Brandon Swanner, youth pastor at uh, Pleasant Valley Community Church, I chatted with him. We got together for a breakfast, and we started just chatting about possibly a, a thing that we could do together as a way of serving the families in both of our local churches. So we came up with an idea of a Saturday night event once a month on the first Saturday night of the month from 6 to 8. And we're going to start it in January, the first Saturday in January. And we decided to call it Fusion. Now, that's a kind of a cool name, but we had, it has a purpose for the name, too. Fusion meaning this. The desire, what is fusion? What is the activity of fusion? It is melting something so that it might be brought together with something else. It is the melting and bringing together. So our idea was that with the Word of God, we could teach and seek to melt the hearts of parents and and youth and teenagers so that there could be a fusion taking place between the hearts of kids and the hearts of their parents as they're instructed at the same time together that it would serve to actually accomplish what Jesus died for. That it would be an effort to, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. That was, the, that was the, the vision. But it would also be a fusion of two church ministries, two separate churches seeking to come together for the purpose of strengthening this in both local assemblies. And it would be a fusion of high school kids and 7th and 8th grade middle school kids. Sorry, 6th graders, I've taught you you're too young. You've got to wait. So 7th and 8th. And on a Saturday night, coming together as parents and teens for a time of instruction, worship, discussion, those kind of things. So that's going to happen, Lord willing, at the beginning of January. We're going to be working through 
a book that some of you all, we're going to use this book as kind of a, as a springboard for the main kind of things we're going to talk about. Um, you've per- perhaps read Carl Graustein's uh, Growing Up Christian. We're going to kind of use that as a it's, a, it's an excellent, excellent, excellent book about helping teens take ownership of their walks with the Lord, which is one of the big dangers of growing up in church, is that you, gotta, you have to transfer a faith that is yours, that belongs to you, a walk with God that is yours, that you have trained your children, but eventually they've got to own it. So it's an effort to, to work towards that. And so, Lord willing, we want to start that in, in, in January, in 2010, and once a month, every Saturday night, we want to invite as many parents as are possible that are able to come, please come. Please come with your kids. We're going to worship together. We're going to um, hear the Word of God together. And we're going to discuss um, the Word of God together. So that's, that's the goal. That's the idea. And that will replace the efforts that are being made, that were being made for Teen Sunday for the time being. So that's the desire. And it will be held at different places every month. So it's back and forth between here at Heritage and our sanctuary or at Pleasant Valley in their sanctuary. So that's the goal. If you have more questions about that, I invite you to talk to me. Please do so. I'd be more than happy to do that. So I'm going to pray. And these three things, let these things be on our hearts this week. A biblical youth ministry is seeking to see and cultivate parents as the primary nurturers of their children. Secondly, equip parents for the work of parenting. And thirdly, see the hearts of children turn to the fathers and the fathers to their children. Let's pray that that will happen. Father, thank you for tonight and for the privilege of being able to sit under your word and think about these things. Think about things that are so important. Lord, I know as a church we desire to see the next generation set their hope in God. We want to see that happen. And we pray that that would happen. We've seen it happen. We're so thankful for the grace that you have showered into our lives, that you have flooded us with the glory of Christ, that you have helped us to see the gospel and desire our children. Thank you so much for the parents in this church who love their kids, who want their kids to come to embrace the Savior, to live lives worthy of Him, fully pleasing in every way, just like Pastor Rich preached us this morning. We want that to happen. And Lord, we acknowledge right off the bat that there is no model, that there is no amount of work or creativity or event or Sunday school lesson or family worship time that in and of itself can accomplish any of that. We desperately need you, the Holy Spirit of God, to come and ride upon and use these efforts to bless, change, and transform our lives. Parents, As parents, we want to be changed. We don't want to model before our kids a life that says, you need to change. I don't. No, we all need to change. We all need the gospel. Let no parent-child relationship be a us-versus-them kind of relationship. May it be a relationship that is humble, that recognizes that mom and dad need the cross and model that before children, and children learn that they're Moms and dads are great sinners who have a great Savior and are drawn to trust Jesus because of the way their moms and dads do. Please help us for your glory. 
and the good of the next generation. In Jesus' name, amen.